As we come to God's word tonight, we do come to it as exactly that, the word of God, the words of eternal life. So please turn with me, if you will, to Malachi on page 801 of your pew Bible, Malachi chapter 1. We'll continue here. As you turn there, here's a quote for you. I wonder if you can guess who said it. I hate going to worship. There's so many entitled hypocrites there just going through the motions. It does sound like Martin Luther, that's right. <laughs> Who said it? Well, uh, as Ian Duguid points out in his commentary on this passage, he says that's essentially what God says in Malachi chapter one here. He, he really, he condemns the worship of his people. He says, this disgusts me in the form that it's being offered. So as we come to that, Remember that last week, God affirmed his love for his people, Israel. He said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This week, we see Israel's response to that undeserved love of God, and their response to his undeserved love is unacceptable worship. And so they were questioning God's love for them, but now God turns it around and says, it's not his love for Israel that should be questioned, but rather Israel's love for him, his people's love for him. Uh, our outline for this passage breaks into two parts. There's the worthless worship of the people, worthless worship in verses 6 to 14. And then in chapter 2, we see that God curses the blessings. And that's chapter 2, 1 to 9. So let's pray and then come to this passage together. God, we do, as we come before you, to hear your word, may we do just that, to, to sit under your word, not over it in judgment, but under your word. And show us Christ in this word, Lord. Give us hearts of humility, work by your spirit to apply this deep in our hearts. We pray that our worship would be pleasing and glorifying to you for the sake of Christ as we rest on him tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Malachi chapter one, beginning in verse six. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how? have we despised your name by offering polluted food upon my altar? But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord? of hosts, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. 
But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. God's word. As we saw last week, Malachi is a series of six sermons, six disputes between God and his people, the people of Israel, and they generally share the same format. These are legal disputes over the covenant that God has, and they work like this. First, God makes a statement, and then the people of Israel respond with a question, why, how, what, which, and then God gives a response. And then there are some implications that are drawn out. And that's exactly what we see tonight. We see two assertions, two questions, God's response and implications. And here's the assertion in, in verse 6 that God says that he is both a father and a master to Israel. And yet Israel does not treat him as they would a human father or a human master. God is a father to Israel. As we've gone through Exodus, we saw that. Exodus 4, verse 22, he says, Israel is my firstborn son. And you can find this type of reference that, that Israel is God's son all throughout Scripture. Likewise, he is a master. He's referred to as Adonai, as Lord, as master, all throughout uh, the Hebrew Bible. For example, Isaiah 1, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master, but my people do not know me, says the Lord. And so Malachi is basically setting up a kind of a fortiori argument where you have the first proposition and then a truth that's implied that's true and then a truth that's implied that's the second proposition. So because this is true, this thing that's obviously part of the first thing is also true. And so God says, sons honor fathers, servants revere masters. God is both father and master. So where is my honor? Where is my reverence? Where is your awe for me? 
And instead of glorifying and honor God, he says the, pre, the Israel and its priests have despised him and his name. And instead of beautifying him with the beauty of holiness, the priests have instead offered polluted sacrifices that pollute his altar. And he expands on it with kind of this picture of this thought experiment of the governor you, that you heard when I, when I read it earlier. He says, basically, if you can justify offering sick, lame, blind animals to God, imagine doing the same to the governor of your town, your city. Would he accept it? Would he be pleased? Would he think that you saw him as an important and worthy person if you brought your trash to him as a gift? We could do the same thing. We could think who's the most important, political figure in this area. That's the word I'm looking for. We say, okay, the president, he lives right down the road. So imagine, the president says, okay, I'm coming to your house for dinner tonight. And, you, and your response, instead of setting out your very best for him, is to throw out some paper plates, your plastic silverware, you throw out a couple unpeeled carrots, and you look in the fridge for the leftovers you're about to throw away, maybe the dried out hamburger, you heat it up, you throw it down for him. And the whole time he's there, you say, this is wearisome. My favorite show is on. What am I doing? This is basically what Israel is doing with God, and God points it out with this illustration of the governor and condemns them for it. And it's not just the people, it's the priests as well. It's the people who, the very men who are supposed to be leading the people in worship are fully colluding with, with the people in this. You think, just think about our English word, our modern English word for worship comes from the old Anglo-Saxon word, worthship which is just simply to express the value or worth of something. And so the the worship of Israel is showing how much they value God, which is to say, little to none. At the end of verse 8, when he finishes this illustration of the governor, he says, I'm not just the governor. I'm the Lord of hosts. He's the commander of the legions of heaven. Just the appearance of one angel in Scripture, you, you know your Bibles, is enough to cause anyone to sprawl on their face in fear. And God commands them all. He says, I am the Lord of hosts, not just the governor of some backwater town at the edge of an empire. And yet you disrespect me. You despise me. You don't show me worship, proper worship, but you believe that I'm worth, functionally you're showing me you believe I'm worthless worth less than a governor, worth less than a father, worth less than a master or a boss. But yet the reality is that I am the Lord of hosts. And we'll come back to this because Malachi, by one count, Malachi uses some derivative of the phrase Lord of hosts in 44% of the verses in Malachi. That is mind-blowing. He wants you to know that the Lord is the Lord of hosts. Don't go count it, but for those of you who read Hebrew, check it up later. There's another reality is that if God's people refuse him, others will not. And we see that in verse 11. He says, I'm going to be worshiped with pure offerings in some place far beyond the border of Israel. And he says, the nations, my name will be great among the nations beyond the borders of Israel in every place in the entire world. And so the leftovers that are offered for sacrifice show how much God's people truly value him. Not at all. And so he says in verse 10, I wish one of you priests would just lock the doors to the temple and stop offering these vain 
sacrifices because worthless worship wastes everyone's time. You know, if we come here, we go through the motions, and we do our thing, and then go out, and just waste, you wasted your time, you waste God's time. So it'd be better for you not even to show up than to do what you're doing. But put a pin in that because his conclusion isn't, so don't bother to worship. His conclusion is, realize how great God is and how worthy he actually is, how much he loves you, and worship him. Worship him rightly. Worship him truly. Sadly, this, this threat that the doors of the temple would be shut in some way is fulfilled partially in, in the 70 AD when the Roman legions come and the temple is destroyed by Titus and the doors are permanently shut and sacrifices cannot be offered there anymore. And yet, thankfully, by that time, Jesus Christ had already come and lived and died and offered the ultimate once-for-all perfect blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins that Corey read about earlier in Hebrews chapter 13. And so in the New Testament era, Hebrews 13, 15, 16, doesn't call us to offer animal sacrifices, but the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And there again, you see the connection between sacrifice and the name of God that, that exalts his name as worthy. And it goes on to say, do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. God says, yes, offer me praise that honors my name, but your stuff you can give to other people because I don't need it. <clears throat> so we could ask, Continuing in that theme, what, what sacrifices and offerings are we called to bring to God today? You ask yourself, do I show him honor? God, God is speaking through Malachi to religious people uh, in, this, in this book. And all of you are religious enough to at least show up here on a Sunday evening. So I think there's a word here for all of us to ponder, to consider. When we look at our lives, where is God's honor? Do we honor him as much as father or master or boss or governor or whatever. Do we honor God with our time? A few weeks ago, we, most of us made several hours for a big sporting event, enthusiastically. Do we honor God with our time? If we can do that for, for, a big, for the big game, we can do it for, um, if someone comes into town, most of us will gladly, who we love, most of us will gladly set aside a day, even a week to receive them, to spend time with them, to honor them. If God is our guest, do we give him the same honor? Do we give him a day? Could we give him a week? Could we give him a year? Could we give him our life? Or can we only offer him a few minutes all the while thinking that it's a weariness, like they say in verse 13? What a bother. What a hassle. My favorite show is on. Do we honor God with our treasure? The people of Israel have been commanded in Exodus 23, they're commanded to offer God their best, their first fruits. It says, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord. We actually spoke about this up in the upper room this morning. Imagine being in an agrarian society and you save and you store up for the winter and your food is running out your and then the harvest comes and you're eating the stale and the moldy bread, the very ends of it, and the, the fresh grain comes and you're, you bake the first loaf of bread and what do you do with it? Everything in you wants to eat it. And yet God says, bring it to me as a sign that I will continue to provide for you as, as thanksgiving for your life and your health and the harvest itself. And so he says, bring your first fruits. But what is Israel doing? They're bringing their last fruits, basically, the very worst of what they have uh, to him and trying to pass it off as an offering. And we could ask the same question. Does God get our first fruits 
are our last fruits? Does he get whatever's left over on December 31st after all our vacations and all our purchases and all our things? Or is the first of all we have, the best of all we have, sacrificially, joyfully even, uh, going to him? The timing doesn't matter. I don't care. God doesn't care, I think, if you give on December 31st or not. The timing doesn't matter. It's the heart behind it. Are we making a sacrificial offering of the first and best, or are we giving the last fruits? And then love. God wants our love. He says, I have loved you, and he invites us to love him. And we could ask ourselves, am I, am I here in body, but my heart is elsewhere? You know, even, even a toddler, even my kids, if I'm scrolling on the phone saying, yeah, 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 they, they notice, they know that my full engagement is not with them. How much more the God of the universe? God doesn't want our bodies in pews. He wants, he wants our hearts engaged with praise for him because he says, I have loved you. I first loved you. And he wants our love and our joy, joyous response to him. Verse 14, he, he goes on and he says, for I am a great king, at the end of verse 14, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This reference to a great king is a reference to the suzerain vassal treaties of the ancient Near East. Many of you will be familiar with this, um, but if you're not, let me briefly describe it. The great kings of the ancient world would make these covenants with lesser, smaller tribes, and they would usually go something like this. I, so-and-so, the great king, uh, will... Offer my love and protection and care for you if only you fulfill the terms of this covenant, which is to uh, offer your loyalty, your gifts, and your love to me. And so there's these kind of treaties that happen all throughout. And if the lesser people are unfaithful to the terms of the covenant, then the king will come and he will enforce these terms. And by saying he's a great king, God reminds Israel of their covenant with him. And in verse 9, he says they're assuming that they'll get the covenant blessings, but all the while, they're defying the terms of the covenant. And so he says, what is, what is that? I am a great king. And in fact, chapter 2 goes on to address this question of covenant blessings. Will the blessings of the covenant be available for the people of God, or will something else happen? And so we see the worthless worship of chapter one. Now, in chapter two, we see that this discussion about blessings, and we see that, in fact, God says, I will curse your blessings. He talks to the priests. So let's look at that, chapter two, the blessing. God speaks now directly to the priests. He says, I will curse your blessings. What is that? One of the great privileges of Israel's priests was to remind God's people that they were in covenant relationship with God. And we see that all throughout when God made these covenants, he made promises, promises to bless, to give life. We see it with a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, 12, 15, and 17. We see it, the covenant with Moses, which we'll see as we come up to the, the 20s of Exodus. Uh, we see it in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, Leviticus 26. You see these promises of blessing for covenant faithfulness. And all of those get kind of summed up into the words that we use for our benediction that Corey uh, used and prayed over faith, the, this, this ironic blessing that, that the, the descendants of Levi, Aaron and the priests were to say to the, over the people of Israel, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you his peace. This sums up these blessings of life in the presence of God with his favor and his smile upon you. 
And the priests were to say this, and God says the reason for that is verse Numbers 26, 27, I will put my, they will put my, by saying this blessing, they will put my name on the people of Israel and I will bless them. And so the goal of all that was to put God's name on the people of Israel, his blessing, his favor, his love, his peace. But the priests and the people had been unfaithful and broken covenant, and so God's gonna put something else on them. Instead of putting his name on them, he's gonna put dung on them, verse three. So kids, you ready? You don't always get to hear about poop from the pulpit, but Malachi is a different kind of preacher, so he's talking about this, so we're gonna talk about it. Basically, verse three, what Malachi says in modern English is that their sacrifices are full of crap, and so God is gonna smear the crap of their sacrifices on their face. And if this wasn't a PG service, we might actually translate it more strongly, but we'll keep it PG. It's gross. He says he'll take the offal, that's O-F-F-A-L, the, the intestines from the sacrifices, and he'll break them open, and he'll take this partially digested excrement, and he will smear it on the faces of the priests, who were, which would obviously make them unclean, both physically and ritually, and then he will take them, and he will cast both priests and poop outside the city. It's actually a terrible, awful thing. And he would toss them out. In the southwest of the city, there was this huge burning pile of waste that was just continually burning that came to be known as Gehinnom in Hebrew or Gehenna in Greek. <clears throat> and the rabbis take this later and use this concept of a burning, of the continual burning of unclean things to represent divine punishment, hell. God says, I will cast you out there. When I read this, I'm scared because pastors and elders in some ways serve in very much similar roles to, to the priests of Israel, to administer the worship of the people of God and to teach God's word. So that's a sobering warning. God has serious judgment for religious leaders who don't take God and God's word seriously. Lord have mercy. But it's not just pastors, both the Old Testament and the New Testament call God's people a kingdom of priests in both Exodus and Peter. And so there's a warning here for everyone in the covenant community to, to heed, to take seriously. We see in these verses in the early part of chapter two that the starkest possible reminder that there are conditional aspects of this covenant of God with his people. He says things like, if you will not listen, or because you did not lay it to heart, I will do these things. And we could say, because you did not, you have continued not to listen, because you continually do not take it to heart. God wants to give all these blessings to his people, the blessings of the covenant, and yet it, he requires a response from them, a faithful response. The obedience of Israel, the holiness of Israel's priest, and what he gets is the disobedience of Israel and the uncleanness of the priest offering worthless worship to him. That's all pretty hopeless. And then we get to verse four or five and six, and all of a sudden there's, there's a little glimmer of hope with all of a sudden God gives the, in the middle of telling these priests that their blessings will now be turned into curses and that they themselves will be cursed, God stops and he points to what a faithful priest should be. And so fascinatingly, he's not speaking in the plural any longer. He starts to speak in the singular about he, him, one person. Faithful priestly ministry should be characterized by, verse five, fear. That means reverence and awe for God, 
should be characterized, verse 6, by a total commitment to the truth. And part of the problem in this passage is that the priests were unwilling to tell the truth to the people of Israel, that their crappy offerings, so to speak, were, were going to be rejected by God. They needed to make that clear, and yet they were refused to do so because it's uncomfortable to do that. And they refused to do so. And verse 6 says that this ideal faithful priest will practice what he preaches, walking with God in peace and uprightness, and that his righteousness will turn many from iniquity, from sin, to righteousness. He would be, and he is, the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And God describes this faithful priestly ministry in the context of what he calls my covenant with Levi. Now, if you, if you haven't, if you're sitting here thinking, well, I know about a covenant with Abraham, with Moses, but what's the covenant with Levi? You're not alone. There's not sort of an explicit covenant with Levi that is, that is highlighted anywhere besides here in a formal description. But commentator John McKay points out several things that come together to give us a composite picture of what is meant by this phrase, a covenant with Levi, with the priests, the Levitical priests. First of all, in the days of Moses and Aaron, the Levites rallied to Moses' side after Israel's sins with the golden calf. And so we see this kind of um, <clears throat> push for holiness. In Numbers 18, verse 19, it refers to an everlasting covenant with salt in connection with uh, sacrifices that were made to God and then given to the priests for their sustenance, that God would promise to sustain them over time and the salt would leaven the people's worship. And then there's also a covenant of peace with Phineas, who was one of Levi's descendants. In Numbers chapter 25, we see that Phineas is zealous for God's honor and he doesn't stand aside, but he takes action to stop sin when he sees God's people sinning casually in the context of worship. As you put all this together, you see that Levitical priests were not to tolerate sin. They were to be like salt, preserving the worship of God's people by word and deed, the covenant by word and deed. And this was not supposed to be a weariness for them, like they say in verse 13 of chapter 1, but to result in life and in peace, in shalom, the good life. His true worship is not wearisome if we understand it rightly. This is, a, this is key right here, is that, that God's Word doesn't crush life and joy. It gives life and joy and peace when we, see, when we see and understand it rightly. This is the key to getting out of half-hearted worship. You cannot guilt your way out of half-hearted worship. You have to love your way out of half-hearted worship. You understand? Uh, there's that great sermon titled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. We need an affection for God because we already worship what we truly love with our time and our daydream and our daydreams and our money and all the things, uh, but we need a, a larger vision for who God is and for what he has done uh, to provide for us in order to truly love him and offer him heartfelt worship. Sadly, in Malachi's day, the priests did not respond. We see that they continue on in the same way. And in fact, when the Qumran community, the Dead Sea uh, community, cites in their community rule uh, why they rejected the Jerusalem temple and the priesthood. They cite Malachi 1 and 2. They cite this passage as the rationale for why they walked away and went out into the desert alone. These priests needed to repent, and yet priestly repentance is insufficient. So God's people need this faithful priest that's described in verses 4 and 5 and 6, but where is he? Will he ever appear? After Malachi... There's a blank page in your Bible, and it represents the words, the prophetic word goes silent. 
And while it does, the priesthood becomes more politicized, more corrupt. It's only something that can be bought. The high priest can only become a high priest with a huge sum of money. And the religious leaders fracture into people who, on the one hand, are constantly lecturing God's people to be more holy but not doing anything about it. And on the other hand, people who are saying, just blend in. That's the way to get by here. Sounds familiar. Then one day, Jesus Christ walks into the temple and he claims to be the messenger of the Lord who also is himself the Lord. And Hebrews 7 and 8 tell us that he is the great high priest whose perfect work and ministry ended the need for the Levitical priesthood, for the sacrifices, and that he comes and he offers the ultimate sacrifice that shows God's incredible worth. The perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Passover lamb sacrificed for us. And he embodies these characteristics of Malachi 2, he, 4 through 7. He always walked in the fear of the Lord. And he didn't just walk in the way. He didn't just teach the way, but he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one has peace with God except by me. And yet, despite all that, he is smeared with shame. He's cast outside the city, as we saw in Hebrews 13. He's cursed with all the covenant curses that the lawbreakers deserved so that all who follow him can receive the blessings promised for covenant obedience because all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. So the disobedience of Israel's priests cursed their blessings, but the obedience of Jesus Christ, who's our great high priest, turns curse into blessing, death into life, shame into glory as we walk with him, empowered by his spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, in light of the stark warnings and the awful threat and the devastating curses offered to those who claim your name and yet devalue your worship, we can only come and repent and say that each and every one of us has done that in some way at some point, perhaps even tonight. So we come to you in repentance and humility, asking forgiveness for the sake of your son, Jesus, who offered the perfect sacrifice, who came as the great high priest, who did away with the, with the these failures and, and who took the curses of the covenant so that we can have the blessings of life and peace with you. God, I pray for anyone here who has not understood that before, that they would uh, put their hope in him, that they would receive and rest on him for their salvation. I pray for all of us, the many who, who have, uh, that we would go out with joy, that we would not offer worthless things or even kind of worthy things, Lord, but we would, we would be ready to offer the first fruits to you in joy with, with gladness in response to all that you have done for us in Christ, Lord. Uh, may your name be glorified in our life, in our worship here, Sunday morning and evening, week after week, month after month, year after year. Let us glorify your name. In the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.